This week brought many celebrations here in the Capital Region. Among them, International Women's Day, Purim, Holy, and the return of the annual Albany St. Patrick's Day Parade. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. I'm not sure if this has once again opened the never-ending debate over where upstate begins and downstate ends. We'll talk about the weather. One warm winter is not an aberration, but if we have warm winters over a period of time, things can start to mismatch. And we'll hop on some Capital Region food and beverage trails with dining critic Susie Davidson-Powell. They're making their own nixtamalized masa dough and making their own tortillas, using a comal, which is the traditional stone on which you're cooking the tortillas. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we're here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top stories this week. We'll start with a shakeup in the executive chamber, a shakeup in the Hochul administration. What's going on there? Yeah, the um, former acting state budget director, Sandra Beattie, has left her position, um, forced out, according to what um, Brendan Lyons, our Capitol Bureau chief and uh, managing editor for investigations, have heard, alongside uh, Rajiv Rao, who is the deputy chief information officer for technology and the chief technology officer at the State Office of Information Technology Services. And I'm sorry I'm using the word technology a lot, but there you go. But um, that is the agency that effectively serves as New York State government's IT division. This is all taking place uh, amid an examination of whether government contracts worth a lot of money that both Beattie and Rao worked on followed procurement guidelines. And apparently the executive chamber, meaning Governor Kathy Hochul's office, has referred this matter to the office of the state inspector general for examination, let's say. Now, no one here has been accused of wrongdoing to this point, but it is obviously a rather um, shadowy exit um, in the case of Ms. Beattie and a leave of absence that is being taken by by Mr. Rao. Needless to say, your uh, acting budget director is somebody that you definitely want to have on hand when you are in the middle of a state budget negotiation. And we should note that Ms. Beattie's exit took place right around the same time that uh, Robert Megna, who was the, the top budget director for uh, former governors David Patterson and Andrew Cuomo agreed to come aboard as budget director for this legislative session. 
which of course ends in June. The state budget, however, is supposed to be negotiated by the end of March because the state fiscal year begins again in April. We have a very, very busy Capitol Bureau right now. Head over to the New York State section on timesunion.com to see everything that they are reporting. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the Central Warehouse again. We've talked about it many times on this podcast, this famous Albany eyesore. Uh, And this week, the uh, former owner of the Central Warehouse uh, had his claim to uh, complain about the Albany County taking it from him dismissed. So tell us more about that. Yeah, um, a federal judge, Lawrence Kahn, um, has dismissed the claim by Evan Bloom, who was, uh, depending on how you look at it, the former owner or the current owner of Central Warehouse. Um, yeah, I struggled with how to introduce that. <laughs> well, that yeah, that's fine. I, I I think it's fair to say that legally, at least, he is he is currently the former owner of Central Warehouse because Albany County has taken ownership of it. He sued uh, claiming $1.5 million in damages after the county seized this humongous, extraordinarily monstrous uh, former refrigeration building uh, right al- alongside, you know, in, in sort of the heart of the warehouse district and alongside some very significant developments that are coming up down by the, the riverside, as the gospel song would have it, <laughs> in downtown Albany. Now, the dismissal was, as they say, without prejudice. It was largely due to the apparent failure of Mr. Bloom's lawyers to file responses in this case. He can refile it, but you kind of uh, wonder if Mr. Bloom is thinking he might be reaching a point of diminishing returns in this legal effort to hold on to this uh, wonderful, decrepit property. And also, I think we need to have a side discussion as to whether or not it is Central Warehouse or the Central Warehouse. Is that like the Ohio State versus Ohio State? The Ohio State University. I don't, I've never heard anybody say the Central Warehouse. Maybe we could start something. All right. So we're going to stay with the Central Warehouse here. We're going to talk that we're talking about the past of the Central Warehouse just just now. And now let's talk about the future. Chris Churchill wrote a column about some uh, complications with the potential future of the Central Warehouse. What's going on there? Yeah, we're we're talking about Redburn Development, which is the company that has been tapped by Albany County to receive almost $10 million from the state for just the initial steps toward the redevelopment of Central Warehouse, or as you put it, the Central Warehouse. Um, (laughs) That was totally subconscious. (laughs) Sure it was. Yeah. But uh, Redburn has had a rocky last couple of months. One of its uh, subsidiaries, Redburn Property Services, um, were hit with a lawsuit alleging Uh, racial practices, uh, comments, uh, mistreatment of employees of of color. They settled the suit. Redburn settled the suit. And at the same time, uh, one of its principals said uh, that the company is not a racist uh, endeavor, but that it could could definitely do better um, and that they would endeavor to do better. And uh, of course, this uh, has... uh, raised concern among some uh, elected leaders in Albany, especially those who um, represent um, heavily black neighborhoods such as the South End. In one case, you have common council member Derek Johnson 
who says that the city could, should uh, stop doing business with, with Redburn as a result of the lawsuit. So there's some controversy there for, you know, a, a player who has definitely done, uh, at least in uh, real estate redevelopment terms, a lot of very high profile and very good work in revitalizing downtown Albany. But this is a significant uh, bump in the road. All right. Well, more uh, news to come about Central Warehouse, I'm sure, as the weeks and months and even years maybe uh, drag on. All right. Let's cover one more topic. One story for us this week that did particularly well involves a sweatshirt. I will let you take it from here. What's going on with the sweatshirt? Yes. The the sweatshirt. Yes. The sweatshirt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is um, a hoodie being offered by uh, H&M, the sort of affordable, fashionable retailer that has the word upstate in the the kind of lettering that you would see, for example, in the uh, the gift shop at the Ohio University, at <laughs> the university, and uh, just under it, under the word upstate, there is sort of a weird kind of crest design that says NYC. Just this makes no sense, none. <laughs> and it, this has been pointed out, Alexander Zisu of our uh, Hudson Valley team spoke to some very, very perplexed people uh, about this and uh, and no one can make hide nor hair of it. H&M, unfortunately, uh, declined to offer any kind of, of explanation. And I'm not sure if this has once again opened the never-ending debate over where upstate begins and downstate ends or is some kind of bizarre hoodie-involved attempt to seal that state breach. But there you go. 35 bucks, it can be yours, Jess. <laughs> I, I'm one of the people who is questioning what it means, uh, having engaged in that age-old debate for pretty much my entire life. All right, Casey. Uh, and one more thing that I think we should disclose, that you and I are both Northwestern University alums, which is a, a an Ohio State rival. So I feel like we have to throw that out there, because I don't I'm have any particular allegiance to the Ohio State. Well, not, not only that, but in, in related Big Ten news, my son, who is a Siena graduate and a, a pitcher on the Siena baseball team, because of COVID, he's got another year of eligibility. So he is now playing for Indiana University or perhaps the Indiana University. I'm not sure which it is. So my Big Ten uh, loyalties are, are uh, significantly divided right now. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, Casey, thank you so much. And we'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. All right. Let's talk now about one of my favorite subjects, the weather. It's not news to many that the winter of 2023 has been a mild one. Record high temperatures from the Adirondacks to New York City have had repercussions that are rippling across the eastern part of the state. Economically, it's hurt ski resorts and attractions like ice castles in Lake George. Physically, it's caused tragic accidents on lakes and waterways that weren't quite frozen enough to support typical winter activities and environmentally, it poses a threat to flora and fauna in various ways. But those side effects and others of an unseasonably mild winter 
don't necessarily just end when spring finally arrives. And that's as Times Union contributing editor Alexandra Zissou recently reported. I connected with her to find out more about what those consequences may be. Tell me, what's the weather been like? You know, there are some days where it's been 20 degrees above what it like. I remember on my um, one of my daughter's birthday is February 5th. So last year on February 5th, so 2021. Oh, no, I guess 2022. It was there was an ice storm and we were outside like smashing trees that were covered in ice. And it was this glistening, crazy, like frozen tundra. And then this year, I think it was like 48. It's eerie. I'm someone who does some climate work. I was trained by the by Al Gore's Climate Reality Organization. I, I know a lot about the climate crisis. And to me, wacky weather is climate change in action. And it's just, it's been a kind of an eerie feeling all winter. Because on the one hand, you know, if you get past February and you haven't had the like two foot dump of snow on your lawn, it's you, you start wondering like, when is mud season coming? When am I going to see my daffodils? And you get into that spring fever feeling. When am I going to hear a peeper? Uh, when are the red winged blackbirds going to return? Which happened this year on February 21st was the first oh, time wow. I heard. Well, yeah, I know. And I was like, that is early. So one of the things that you address in the article that you wrote is the fact that, you know, it's not completely and utterly no. unusual yeah, for weather in February to be so warm. But there are, according to the folks that you, the experts that you interviewed, some concerning elements. So I, I admitted my bias about my a sort of climate reality training on purpose. So when I got on the phone with the experts, the local experts who know about wind this life cycle of ticks or um, when bears emerge from hibernation. Um, uh, I appreciated the, of course, scientific approach to one warm winter doesn't equal the rest of every, it's not catastrophe. I mean, there is probably a catastrophe coming, but it's not, this is, right. This is not you know, like, let's, let's root it in sort of scientific theory. So one warm winter is not an aberration, but if we have, warm winters over a period of time, things can start to mismatch, like a bird will emerge um, or come come back north earlier than the insects that they're meant to eat come out and things will start to mismatch. And like, um, I think in the story, a, a zoologist from the DEC was saying, like, there's a kind of hare that is actually more north near Albany, typically in the Adirondack Park area, that it, it camouflages itself yearly by turning brown or white. And when there's no snow on the ground and it turns white, it's now more visible mm -hmm. to predators until, you know, evolution, that animal will probably evolve to match when the snow is and isn't coming in the future. But at the moment, they're they're really exposed. And evolution is quite slow, as yeah. studied. So there's kind of two aspects of this in my opinion, one is kind of the long range forecast for lack of a better term, you know, climate change overall. What are the more immediate concerns? So we, I mean, you mentioned the T word. The T word. Yeah. Um, so I talked to a guy uh, who I often talk to whenever I have a tick question um, at the Cary Institute in in Millbrook. You know, they've been studying the life cycle of ticks for, for decades, and he is saying they will emerge earlier this year in a warm weather year. The nymphs, which are the tiny little ones that you can't really see when you tick checks, are absolutely going to emerge 
several weeks ahead of time and he said get ready so um uh -oh. and and then he also said that the bigger ones which you can see um the adult ticks they never went away this winter because we had so many days above 40 degrees which is when they come out snow doesn't kill ticks it just sort of keeps them under a snow layer and they're nice and insulated down there so they don't come up but when there's no snow on the ground they've been around all winter so he was saying it's not necessarily that we're going to have more ticks this year. It's just that the the nymph cycle, they're going to come out earlier. So you might not necessarily taking the precautions that you exactly. normally would in the spring or summer. Yep. So get out, get out your long white socks or however it is you like to protect yourself and sort of stay on the carriage roads rather than, you know, deep in the woods in the leech litter. And, and you know, around here where I am and I'm in New Paltz, I'm in the Hudson Valley, it's not that we don't all then get um, tick-borne illnesses. But we do know at this point how to protect ourselves as much as possible from those tiny little guys. The thing that we don't quite know as a culture yet how to protect ourselves from is um, toxic algal blooms. What besides ticks do we have to fear about the warm, uh, unusually warm winter that we've had? So last year where I am sort of on the Walkale River, there were these crazy green sludgy blooms of yuck um and it turns out that that stuff can really be harmful like if your dog goes in the water or swallows some of it they could you know be vomiting or be sick or worse things and it can create respiratory issues and i talked to dan chaffley at riverkeeper about about those because he was testing that stuff last year and and we had an article in the times union about it last year by my colleague anyway he said it's actually not the warm winter that will predict that there the rains of spring could dilute some of that or wash more of whatever produces that into the waterways. And anyway, as the years go by, the the warmer weather is not helpful, but it's not the number one prediction of whether or not we're going to get that come um, August again. But there are ways to protect yourself against that too, that I just feel like culturally we're not, like Dan at, at Riverkeeper was saying, like last year people didn't know to stay out of the water when it was that bright green and gross, which to me... I mean, I no, thank you. Stay out of the water. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, there's Doesn't something sound. I'll see, but I, I'm like, no, I, I like the clear water. <laughs> so like, to the common sense, like if it's, you know, and, and also just some stuff about like, you can, the same way we do with ticks, cover yourself. Don't wear open, if you need to be out on the river, you're, you know, a, a mad kayaker and you can't stay out, mm -hmm. uh, close toed shoes, cover yourself up. Um, the same way we do sort of for, for tick protection, waterproof stuff, obviously. And then um, maybe don't take your dog out with you on the water on the days where it's really bright green. One of the things that I was kind of fascinated by was, is there a way for people who like to paddleboard or canoe or whatever people do out on the sludgy water areas to find out, is it safe? And there is a link to the DEC that where they where they say like where the water is safe and isn't safe, but there's a lag on it because they really rely on Some reporting. Yeah, citizen scientists. And the zoologist from the DEC said the same thing about so the red winged blackbird that I saw on February twenty or that I heard on February twenty first and then looked around for, I could report that through their site or let the scientists know what I'm seeing in my own yard. And that's really helpful data for them. Same thing with the um, toxic algae. If you see it and you're on a hike somewhere and it's not just say like in a more obvious area of the wall kill, which is pretty big and people in New Paltz are seeing it because they cross over it daily on a bridge. 
even though we're all living through this and, and we all noticed that there was not a lot of snow this winter, they need more data to help them make predictions. Predictions are really hard to make without um, consistent, robust data. Well, that's a really great piece of service journalism. Yeah. How can people make those reports? They go to the, the state DEC website? For the algae and the blooms, yeah, the, the DEC, you can, um, and then uh, the guy from the DEC for the like emerging animals earlier, he likes something called iNaturalist, which um, I believe the link is in the story. And, you know, I don't think it would occur to most people to be like, hey, I saw a bird, I'm going to go report it on the DEC <laughs> site. But if you are also walking around in this warmer weather without a lot of snow, or maybe you're feeling bad for the local businesses, like, you know, the skiways and stuff that probably had a pretty bad season, or you're thinking like, oh, all these places that earn so much money in the summer because people come up and they do like to kayak or paddleboard or canoe, like you you can be helpful. And I, I like that because when I feel despair about the climate or warmer weather, I, I want to help. And that's like a tangible thing that we could all do if you're interested. There's more information on where and what you can report from your backyard as a citizen scientist at timesunion.com. After the break, we will hop on the Capital Region Taco Trail and learn where you can get expertly made non-alcoholic cocktails, all with Times Union dining critic Susie Davidson-Powell. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. We are going to hop on the line now with Times Union's food and drink critic, Susie Davidson-Powell. If you follow her Food Life newsletter, which you can subscribe to at timesunion.com, or anything that she writes for us, you know that she is absolutely on top of local dining trends. In the past few weeks, she's focused on putting together comprehensive guides to different types of food and beverages across the region. Most recently, she compiled a capital region taco trail. 13 taquerias from Columbia to Saratoga counties, where you can get authentic and delicious variations of the traditional Mexican dish. She also put together a cocktail crawl that highlights local bars and restaurants that are doing innovative things 
with non-alcoholic mixed drinks. I caught up with Susie this week to get a taste of what she's highlighted. Let's talk about the taco trail. Yeah, well, I mean, readers of the Times Union dining column and those who subscribe to The Food Life know I like to keep up on trends and sort of what's happening on the East Coast, the West Coast, London, wherever. And I was inspired by a taco trail that was just northwest of San Francisco, and it was um, 40 taqueria, uh, mom and pop type of businesses. And I was like, you know, that's so fun. We have so many different places for tacos in the capital region, which is kind of a surprising trend. And it did come out of the pandemic, a lot of handheld foods, you know, quick order foods. And we have definitely representation from different parts of Mexico. So although we have a lot of Tacaria spots from the Oaxaca region, you know, we also have Mexico City or the Yucatan Peninsula. So I thought, why don't I do this little roundup? Of course, there are going to be people who say, you didn't include this one and you didn't include that one. (laughs) You know, there are full service Mexican restaurants, of course, but this was geared towards, you know, where you could get, you know, three tacos for around $10. And there was a specific region, you know, it's either a tiny hidden gem that you might not know about, or they're making their own nixtamalized masa dough and making their own tortillas using a comal, which is the traditional stone on which you're cooking the tortillas. I wanted to sort of have a good geographic spread and something quite manageable. So you could literally give yourself a taco trail and start in Hudson and end up in Boston Spa or close to Saratoga. Tell me about some of the unique things that are happening with tacos here that you discovered that are part of this trail or not part of this trail. To some degree, they're not necessarily terribly unique, right? There's a there's an overall format. I mean, you, you get your different kinds of taco meats, whether you have tinga chicken, you're often going to find that, or lengua, which is tongue. When you find places that are selling that, that usually is a good indication of it being pretty authentic. Uh, the same thing with the mold that is grown on ears of corn. It's called huitlacosh. When you find that, that's one of my favorite vegetarian ones, and it's pretty rare to find it on most menus, but you, you would find that on Wolf Road, actually. So that's at Toro Cantina, I should say, on Wolf Road. Then they're topped very simply, usually just with chopped onions and um, cilantro and a nice wedge of fresh lime. But having good quality tortillas, you know, freshly made, you will find this in the most, sometimes in the most unassuming places. I think by now most people have heard of Wakenya Tricky, which I wrote about back in um, 2016. I feel like nobody had heard of it. I went into this little bodega and there it was in the back of the shop. And that one is certainly on everybody's radar, but they may be less familiar now with Sabor Latina Taqueria, which is on Lexington. It's not far at all from Wakenya Tricky. And my goodness, you walk in there, the smells, the the big pots of um, different kinds of chili peppers that they're using. It's truly wonderful. And you can eat in, they have enough tables, or you can just take it to go. If you, you know, have one piece of advice for someone who wants to start out on the taco trail, where, where, what would your advice be? Okay, so some of the places that are, say, in um, like a grocery store, like a bodega type of thing, you know, I would always check their hours. Sometimes they're just closed for the day. Sometimes they've just changed their menu for the day. Sometimes there's only one person working. I feel as if there are a lot of variables 
And there were times, you know, a couple of places that I stopped by and they were closed. Most of them do have some sort of online presence, not all of them, but you'll do yourself a favor if you at least check their Facebook or their Instagram just to see that they're open and they haven't put up a message saying, sorry, closed today. Now, just for our audience to know, there is a map that goes along with the Taco Trail piece that you wrote. It kind of shows you where all of these, it maps it out for you where all these places are. And there's a large concentration of them, I think it's fair to say, around Central Avenue in Albany. So if you're clicking on the map, which I think is a fantastic thing that the Times Union has added, and we should give a shout out to Erica Smith for your head in that, that will just help you maybe pick two or three that are in relatively close proximity. You, you know, you don't have to do all 13 in one go. That would be... <laughs> You'd, you'd be eating a lot of tacos, and I did that for you. So um, <laughs> the easy ones to group together are, are those Albany ones that are pretty closely concentrated. Yes. So let's talk about another trail that you were working on. This one is about beverages, specifically non-alcoholic beverages. So tell us about that trail. This one's close to my heart. I write a monthly cocktail column, and uh, it brings me great joy to put a spotlight on really good cocktails if you're not drinking, for whatever reason, right? You might be the driver, you might be pregnant, you might just not want to drink, whatever reason, you're on a health kick, or maybe it's a forever choice. Nine times out of 10 in the past, you'd be, you know, looked at and someone would offer you, you know, a fruit juice or great, I guess I'm drinking mineral water all night or, you know, whatever it is. And this has really changed, in, especially in the past few years. And I mean, when all of these non-alcoholic spirits burst onto the scenes, you have Seedlip, you have Ritual, you have Monday Gin, you have all of these different brands that are actually distilling spirits in the same way you would distill alcoholic ones, but distilling out the alcohol. So you're getting the flavor and um, some of the mouthfeel and some of the sort of key elements that alcohol brings to a cocktail. But then you're really in the hands of the mixologist, right? You are dependent on somebody crafting you a grown-up drink that you want to sip because the problem with like fruit juice or water is you just glug it. It's not like something you're sitting, you know, in that more social way that you're just sipping gently on a cocktail. So that is the big transition. And what I wanted to show is places that have put non-alcoholic cocktails front and center in print on the menu. And the beautiful thing about that is, you know, people don't have to sort of, you know, identify, oh, I'm not drinking. Can you make me something? People are just choosing. Or you might order an alcoholic drink and then have your second one be the non-alcoholic kind. These places that I included really, really deserve this press. They deserve this kind of spotlight. Can you talk about any specific cocktails that you came across? non-alcoholic cocktails that really like struck you? I think Seedlip is the one that will you'll find most frequently. So whether or not you're going to Padrona in Hudson or Rosanna's on Dub in downtown Albany, that one you'll definitely see. And that's treated, you know, very often they'll add a few ingredients. You know, at Padrona, you can get a Cosnopolitan. Yeah. So that's more alcoholic. In some places you can get um, like pharmacy, you can get an, a new fashioned, which is an old-fashioned but made with non-alcoholic spirit. I just love the plays on words. Wow. One of the popular ones is an either a no-grody or a na-grody um, because it's either, you know, N-A for non-alcoholic or no as in no alcohol. 
Amanda Baker over at Nighthawks. She is probably one of, if not the most talented bartender in the area. But she always has all of these shrubs and tinctures and infusions, like Russian beet kvass, which is a fermented beet drink that's non-alcoholic, like kombucha. So she has the switchblade, which is made with beet kvass, fennel syrup, lemon juice, and orange blossom water. It's absolutely fantastic. It looks like a cocktail. It tastes like a cocktail. It is a cocktail. It just doesn't have any alcohol. Wow. Generally speaking, those of us in the industry, we really, really balk at this title of mocktail. <laughs> That's like my pet peeve. Um, of course, there's nothing wrong with it, but <laughs> you know, these are grown-up drinks that are carefully made and they absolutely deserve the title of cocktail. They just happen to not have alcohol. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Alexandra Zissou, and Susie Davidson-Powell for their contributions to this episode.